I want to read a passage of scripture to begin this morning. We're going to be in Philippians, the third chapter, and if you have your Bible handy or whatever it is you're going to, uh, to read the text on, I'll be reading from the NIV. But I, I just want to make sure that this text is in mind as I go through the things that I want to say later, because I won't always cite the verse or whatever, so if you've got the, the context of the scripture in your mind, I think that'll be very helpful. Paul has an interesting way of using the word finally. He uses it several times here in the, in the book of uh, Philippians, but this is the beginning one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, who I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone else thinks that he has such reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now can consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is my faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to obtain to the resurrection of the dead. As we come to this text this morning, the Apostle Paul is in an interesting situation. He finds himself in prison. It isn't a place where he actually expected to be. He had, he had dreams of going to Rome. If you read the, the, the epistle to the Romans, he said, I want to come to Rome. I want to have a ministry among you. I'm certainly not afraid to come. I want to preach the gospel in Rome, but I also want to see what you, the church in Rome, are doing. But Paul is in jail not where he thought he was going to be when he got to Rome. Ever had something like that happen in your life? You started out one track, and you're pretty sure it's going to go in the right direction, and all of a sudden, it just goes somewhere that you never expected it was going to go. That's, that's Paul. He never expected to be in this prison at this point in time, and he shouldn't be there anyhow, because three officials of the Roman Empire have already said to him, you're not guilty, don't worry about it. But he had appealed to Caesar. And the final verdict isn't in yet. He doesn't know what Caesar's going to say, so he's still in prison. But he's not alone. He has friends, two friends. These friends, by the way, are very important. They make up uh, a series of three individuals who are examples to you and me. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Humility, the same mind is in Timothy, the same mind is in Epaphroditus. These two young men stand by Paul in the middle of all sorts of difficulty. And Paul says of Timothy, I have no one else like him. What an incredible compliment. I have no one else like him. And then he tells you a little bit about Epaphroditus, who's from the church back in, uh, in Philippi. And as he's from this church in Philippi, he's very concerned for Paul. In fact, the church had sent him to, to help take care of him. But he's sick. In fact, Paul says, so sick that he almost died, but he never went home. So, so the church in Philippi is a church that's very, very concerned about the Apostle Paul. It's a church he knows. It's the first church in Europe that he began. Begins with some interesting people, doesn't it? Begins with a woman by the name of Lydia. She sells very expensive purple dye. You add to that a, a demon-possessed damsel who's been released of the demon and is now as a believer. You put there a jailer who has been looking after Paul while he's in prison and finally comes to Christ. And not just he, but his, his family with him. It's an incredible church. They care about Paul. They keep sending, if you will, gifts to Paul while he's in prison. It's a church like Oak Ridge, at least like Oak Ridge to Marguerite and I. Okay. Oak Ridge has been with us every step of the way in our ministry lives since we started doing stuff overseas. The very first church in which Marguerite and I came as a married couple, Oak Ridge. We like this church. It's a friendly place. And that's what Paul liked. A church that had been with him. They looked after him. They sent him gifts. The church that I left in Hamilton sent me gifts to. I remember there was a lady in that church who loved to give me a gift at Christmas. And the gift was always shortbread. I love shortbread. And so before I left for Russia, she gave me this little box and said, now this is your Christmas gift. And I dutifully put this little Christmas gift in my refrigerator in Moscow, waiting for Christmas Day when I was going to open my Christmas gift when I found out it wasn't shortbread. It was a Farside calendar. Now, I like Farside too, but, you know, if it's Farside or a piece of shortbread, in the short run, it's a shortbread, okay? Yeah, you get the idea. Churches send gifts and they do incredible things. This church was looking after Paul. He loved them. They loved him. And now as Paul is sending a message to them, he says, well, you know, it it doesn't bother me to write the same thing over and over. I've written you before. We don't have any of those letters. Maybe he's just reinforcing the things that he preached about while he was in Philippi. We don't know exactly, but we do know that what he says is very interesting. They are concerned about Epaphroditus. They are concerned about Paul. And Paul says something like, oh, don't worry about it. Rejoice. Rejoice. Say, like, you're likely to die. Epaphroditus has been sick unto death. And you're saying, rejoice. What kind of logic is that? 
Well, it's spiritual logic. It's spiritual logic. The spiritual logic runs something like this. If your soul is well, remember how John puts it in one of the little epistles? He says, I hope that you're as well as I am in spirit. That's where true wellness is. It's in, it's in the heart of the being. That's the spiritual logic. I remember one time a number of years ago, a friend of mine called. He'd been very sick. He had leukemia, and it was clear that he wasn't going to beat the leukemia. And he decided what he was going to do, and this was long before Tuesdays with Maury had been written, okay, he was just going to call friends and say, you know what, thanks for being a part of my life. It was a good idea, right? And so I received a phone call. Dave was on the other end and said, Lou, you know what? We've had many great times together. He'd been an elder uh, in a church I was serving for lots and lots of years, been a faithful guy, had lived through terrible tragedies in his life, and had stood for the Lord. And he said, you know, I just want to say thanks before the Lord takes me home. Wow. That's what you call living a life well. That's what it means, facing death well. Interesting thing is, he died at exactly the same time I was taking off from Pearson. We kind of crossed in the air. You know, it was interesting. Spiritual wellness is what it's all about. We have the misfortune, if you will, of living in a society that has far, far too much. And because we have far, far too much, it is hard for us to focus on the important, the essential. Occasionally you get to go to a Christian funeral that's really a Christian funeral. I've been to a lot of funerals in my life. You can't be in ministry as long as I have without having done a lot of funerals, and I've seen some. Actually, there's one I have to admit, there was a bad streak in me, and I preached as long as I could, because as the woman who had died had four sons, and the only, I had never seen them in her entire life, but they were all right there waiting to get to the cash register at the end of the funeral. And I thought, hmm, I think I'm gonna preach a long time today. <laughs> a little spiteful, but you get the idea. Where were you when she needed you? Every once in a while, you're at a funeral where God touches down and the glory fills the place because somebody's soul has been so well that you've seen Christ in them every day of their lives and you sing with joy because to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, and that's an incredible, an incredible experience. It's kind of what Paul believes as you're reading this text. But as he begins thinking about them, they're worrying about him. He's actually worried about them. Think of this. He might die tomorrow. Who's he thinking about? The church back 
in Philippi. I'm worried about them. They are in danger, and they are in danger because everywhere the Apostle Paul goes to preach, there are people who follow him to undermine what he has taught. They think that what Paul is teaching is, what should we say, it's, it's far, far too simple because the Apostle Paul says something like this. This is a message of grace. This incredible message of grace. How do you come to Christ? You come to Christ through grace. There are others who are saying something entirely different than that. They were saying, listen, Grace is way too easy. Paul is saying, listen, you can't get to God by yourself. You can try as hard as you want to try. You can do the best that you can do. You may do a whole lot better than anybody else, but it's not anybody else you're competing with. It's God's standard that you have to deal with. And how are you doing in in meeting that standard? And I want to tell you today that no matter how hard you try or no matter what you try to do, you're never, ever going to reach that standard. You need God's grace and you need God's forgiveness. You need God to do something special for you. And he will. And that's what Paul was preaching. And the people would come in and say, That's way too easy. God couldn't make it that easy at all. I mean, what you have to do, you got to get circumcised. You got to follow the law. You got to eat this. You can't eat that. You can't do this on that day. The other day, you read all about it in Colossians chapter 2. You got to be a Jew before you can become a Christian. That's essentially what they were saying. And Paul is totally frustrated. He says, you dogs. Now you have to understand, Paul in our world would be in animal prison somewhere for saying something like this. This is dog hate language. Remember, a Jewish guy got up in the morning and said, I thank God I'm not a dog. He didn't live in Canada and he wasn't getting gourmet food every day of the week, right? Okay. He wasn't wearing cute little bows on his ears or on her ears or whatever. I don't know. Maybe we have cross-dressed dogs, too. I have no idea. I better get out of that section fast. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Paul looks at dogs. He's thinking of the kind that I see in Romania. When you go out of your hotel at 4 in the morning in Romania, and there's about 50 dogs in a parking lot next door, it's not a real fun experience. They're not all coming over to lick you. You dogs. Then he goes on and says, you workers of evil. You are doing what's evil. And then he goes on further to say, you mutilators of the flesh. Paul really didn't like them. And this whole idea of mutilators of the flesh, the whole idea was if you circumcise them and you get them to start living under the law, they're aimed in the right direction. And Paul says they're not aimed in the right direction. They are aimed in a direction of slavery. They are aimed in a direction of despair. They are aimed in the direction of hopelessness. You can't get there that way. And, and you say, Paul, how do you know? He says, because I tried it. That's how I know. I've been there. I've done that. Listen to what he says. I was circumcised 
on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. First king came from that tribe. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as far as righteousness, based on the law, faultless. I lived on that street. And here's what you need to know. That street is a dead-end street. There is no victory. There is no joy. There is no hope. There is absolutely nothing there that will make your life any better than what it's been before. It's not about circumcision of the flesh, says Paul. Go back up to the third verse, and what he says is, we, we have the circumcision of the heart, and we worship God through the Spirit, and we glory in Christ. And it's not about what we do through the law. It's not about that at all. It's what about Christ has done for us. Circumcision of the heart. You see, this word righteousness maybe is a hard word to understand, but righteousness really means something like this. Righteousness is that which puts people in a right relationship with God. It's what opens the door between God and us. If there's no righteousness there, door is closed. Righteousness is there, the door is open. Now, I'm not sure that this is really true, but I'd like to think that most people would like to have access to God. I'd like to believe that. But there's problems with having access to God. How are you going to get it? How are you going to get that relationship with God? I mean, if you could get it, it's got tremendous benefits, right? No more guilt. No more shame. No more fear of judgment after death or the afterlife. Where are you going to spend it? I mean, it comes with tremendous benefits if if you can settle this issue. Paul knew all of this stuff. That's what we tend to forget. Paul knew all of this stuff. Understand that when the Apostle Paul is writing the epistle to Philippians, he knew a lot of stuff. He had already written 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. He had written 1 and 2 Corinthians. He had written Romans. He had written Galatians. He has written Ephesians. He has written Colossians. And he's written Philemon. He knows a lot of stuff. The thing he knows most is that self-righteousness gets you nowhere. I want you to think about Paul today, the one who is the Pharisee of the Pharisee and the Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. Every day he has to, in his mind, see Stephen Saint Stephen, who is looking up into heaven with the face of an angel and say, yeah, we did the right thing when we stoned him. 
He has to tell himself every day other stories like the women and children and men that he's whipped out of their homes and taken to prison. Yeah. Those good people, it was good for them. They got what they deserved. That's got to wear on you after a while. Certainly the Stephen incident did wear on Paul. Let's read the latter part of Acts. That guilt, that shame, those memories that you just can't get rid of. Now the Apostle Paul, he needs to go through, if you will, a radical, radical change in values. And it's going to happen. I like the way Paul puts it in front. He's, he's very clear. I didn't mention the word before, but I will now. He said, you know what? You, you mutilators of the flesh, when you put the law back on somebody and you say that, that if you get circumcised and you keep the law, you're a good man, basically what you did, Paul says, is you castrated them. They're never going to get any better. Is that word strong enough? That's the one he uses. So most people don't exactly put it that way in the text. There's another little picture here that Paul uses. He's talking strong language here in Philippians 3. Language like he hardly ever, ever speaks. He says, you know what? All of that stuff that I used to do and I called righteousness, that stuff goes in a pooper scooper. That's what he says. It's garbage. No, it's more than garbage. It's caca. Can we get away with that one? That's what he's saying. Self-righteousness is garbage, is filth. And he starts changing what he thinks about. How does that change? How does, how does he change? He's out on a walk one day. Well, it's actually not a walk. He's on his way to Damascus. He's got one purpose in his mind. He's going to go to Damascus. He's going to find a few more Christians. He's going to rip them out of his home. He's described as a wild pig in chapter 8 and verse 3. That's what he is. He's a wild pig tearing around in a vineyard. And if you've never seen what a pig can do when they're loose, believe me, they can do a lot of stuff. If you've got a garden, within 10 seconds, they can finish it for you. Don't worry about it. That's who Paul was. Rooting about in the early church, wrecking whatever he could, wherever he could. And now, he's on his way. A light shines from heaven. A voice speaks. Saul, Saul. Who is it, sir? It is Jesus. And in one second, his life is changed. You say, how did that happen? It happens by grace. And this same Apostle Paul, who's working day after day after day to prove to God that he's really a good guy, but never feels like he got there. Starts writing things like this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those 
who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just write that. He writes something like this. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of the stuff that he could never get through working, working, working. He never had peace. He never had freedom from condemnation. He never had satisfaction. In one moment, in a meeting with Christ, his life has changed. Radically, radically changed. We need to think about that. How did it happen? It happens by grace. And what Paul wants you to understand in this text in Philippians 3 today is this, that when you come to Christ, when you really come to Christ, it changes everything. It changes everything. First thing it changes is your view of reality. The Apostle Paul's view of reality was, wow, if I keep all of the law, I do all of those good things, I'm better than everybody else. Man, people are going to like me. He's climbing the so-called ladder of success. And you can climb it anywhere, right? You can climb the ladder of success in a corporate world. You can climb it in the NGO world. You can climb it in public service world. You can, you can climb it anywhere. I like what Stephen Covey says about it in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Climbing the ladder of success is okay. The problem is when you get to the top and you find out the ladder was against the wrong wall, that's when you're in trouble. That's what happened to Paul. Climbed the ladder of success, did everything he thought that would make everything right, gets to the top, and it's not right. Wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me? God, decide what ladder you're going to climb. What wall you're going to go after. And it's not just that. It changes your focus. Before it was self, before it was spirituality. I mean, you have to understand that up until the moment Paul meets Jesus, he hates his guts. You see, really? Yeah. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. You know what Jesus was to a Pharisee? I mean, starting off with the fact that he breaks the Sabbath day. He not only breaks the Sabbath day, he's a blasphemer. He not only does that, he's a fraud. He's a follower of the devil. I mean, and now all of that's changed. And he's going to follow Christ. And now we begin to talk about, just for a couple of minutes, Paul's goals. What does it mean to follow Christ? Well, Paul sets out a number of things in the last couple of verses here that I want us to take a look at. Paul says this, I want to know Christ. Wait a second. You wrote Ephesians 1 to 3. 
There's a lot about Christ in Ephesians 1 to 3. You wrote in Colossians 1 and 2, there is a lot about Christ. That's my favorite Christology text in the whole New Testament, Colossians chapter 1 and 2. Okay? He wrote this stuff. What do you mean you want to know Christ? He wants to understand who Christ really is. Why Christ does what he really does. He wants to get to know not about Christ. He wants to get to know Christ as a person. We call it going deeper. You know, I mean, if I walk up to one of you today and say, tell me something about your wife. You say, well, she's five, six. Um, she works on this job. She gets up at eight in the morning. She goes to sleep at midnight, blah, blah, blah. You know, I want to know that. Do you? You're looking for something deeper. What is it that makes that person different? That's what Paul's saying. I don't want to read a book on statistics about Jesus. Did 32 miracles, individual ones. 33 parables. Two commands. I want to know Christ in a personal, personal way. So I can share my deepest things with him. Second thing Paul says, I don't just want to know Christ. I want to know about the, the power of his resurrection. It's strange that Paul would say this. I mean, he's already written 1 Corinthians 15. Says, I remind you of this truth. According to the scriptures, Christ was raised on the third day. What do you mean? The power of the resurrection. Here's the deal. When the disciples were sitting with Jesus learning from Jesus, trying to get motivated. Jesus is motivating them for the advancement of the gospel in the entire world. What two things does he talk about? He talks about the kingdom of God. And he gives them many irrefutable proofs of the fact that he, the Christ, is alive. There is power, my friends, in understanding that the resurrection, if Christ be not raised, then is our faith in vain. It is the resurrection that makes us know that Christ is Christ and empowers us. It doesn't just empower us because we know that what he said is true. It empowers us because, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the same Spirit which raised up Jesus Christ from the dead shall give life to your mortal bodies as well. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Don't you? I'm positive that if we know the power of the resurrection, so many of our spiritual lives would be radically changed. We would be powerful influences every place where God puts us. 
which is what we need to be. It's what Paul says earlier. It's what Chris spoke about last week. Stars shining in the universe. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says, I want to know him so well. I want to feel what he feels. Like being a mom, watching a child experience pain. You feel what the child feels, Paul saying. When I look at Jesus, and when I see what Jesus did, I need to know what he felt that made him do that. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's what he felt. How often would I have taken you as a mother hen would take her chicks under her wings? Standing at the tomb of Lazarus, he not only weeps for Lazarus, he weeps because of the unbelief of the people around him. That's Jesus. Paul says, I want to know those kinds of feelings. And then he says, I want to become like Jesus in his death. In other words, I want to come to the place where I am willing to die for the cause if necessary. And he will. He will die for the cause. And it won't be reluctantly. One of the books you want to read sometime is Fox's Book of Martyrs and read about all of the early Christians and what they stood up to so that they could be counted like Christ. And finally, Paul says one thing. I find this one interesting. That I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Confusing, right? Paul, not going to be raised? No, wait a second. Everybody is going to be raised. It's coming a day. Christ is going to speak. And the dead are going to come out of their graves. (laughs) If you think death is going to save you from a meeting with Jesus, um, that's not going to happen. You have an appointment. I don't know what time, that's good news for you, but you have an appointment. But there's a second kind of life after death. I mean, there's people who are dead and then they're dead again. There's people who are dead and live and then they have even more life eternal life. And surely Paul knew that he had eternal life. Often Paul comes across as a very arrogant, strong individual. We forget that Paul's the one who says what? 
I'm the chiefest of sinners. And this is a statement of humility. If I might be counted worthy to have achieved. Don't you ever wake up some days and just say, it is too good to be true. It's not, but it seems like that. And that's what's going on in this text. Wow. And to think the resurrection as well. That's what God wants for you. It's what God wants for me. It's what this text is all about. It is about you and me understanding it's all about Jesus. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Every last person who comes to Jesus comes to Jesus through grace. That's where it comes from. And that door is open to you today. The message that Paul preached 2,000 years ago, same message. God is a gracious God. He's made provision for you. All you need to do, you don't need to get circumcised, you don't need to keep the law. There's just one thing you need to do. You need to come to God and say, I cannot do it myself. I understand you've done it for me. Forgive my sin. And receive me into your kingdom. And by grace, it happens. If you've never prayed that prayer or never asked the Lord to do that, I want to recommend you do that today. Now's the accepted time. Now's the day of salvation. And better, never a better time to do it than now. Because no man knows the day or the hour. You may not have another time. God's grace, it's available. The only question is, you going to do it your way? <laughs> or are you going to come the easy way? And the easy way and the effective way, God's way. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just thank you this morning. <laughs>